HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio. I'm here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, working on some meetings for some land convening and bringing a topic of land access to the radio station today. I'm joined by Jeremiah uh, from New Hampshire. Jeremiah, thank you for joining us. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. I wonder... If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself, your farm, your place in the world. Sure. Uh, we are in uh, Newfields, New Hampshire, which is sort of near Portsmouth, the seacoast region of New Hampshire. And we have a 33-acre uh, farm. Uh, we produce uh, chickens, vegetables, mushrooms, and dried flowers. And uh, we most of our sales are generated through uh, direct sales through retail at farmer's markets, and uh, we'll be opening our farm store in 2015. So tell me, tell me, how did you manage to migrate yourself into agriculture, and what has been your land access story? Um, so I started working on farms after college. I went to base college in Maine, and I worked on a dairy farm in Maine, and then continued working on farms throughout New England for the next uh, about what seven years or so. And then uh, we, I was running a nonprofit agricultural program and uh, was learning some skills and getting ready to start our own farm. So we, my wife and I took the jump. She was a Spanish teacher at the high school. She kept her job, and I started leasing farmland from an established farm in the community. And that was a key first step for us that exposed us to the market and to the different types of customers that we could potentially be dealing with when we started our own farm. And then we started our own farm about four miles down the road at a piece of property that we purchased. Um, it was already in conservation when we purchased it, and now we're in the process of looking to put an OPAV on top of our current easement. So this is part of the – this is, of course, the reason um, to, to have you on the show and 
to celebrate this story because your story has so much in it um, that's instructive and informative to other young people who are trying to figure out how to navigate the path to land security and especially affordable land. Um, But one thing I'll tell you is that not all young farmers and certainly not all land trusts or land owners or people interested in conservation are familiar with OPAV. And it's awesome that the National Young Farmers Coalition is starting to go around doing trainings on OPAV. But let's start um, just with a little basic background on that for the for the beginner. You want to go for it? Sure. So um, we when we purchased our property, we were look, I used to work, when I worked for the nonprofit, we were working with um, Ian McSweeney at the Russell Foundation. So he brought this to my attention, which is basically OPAV stands for Option to Purchase at Agricultural Value. And it's basically a way for current farm owners to put an additional easement on their property and then guarantee that in the future that property will be sold at agricultural value versus at uh, a price that the market may demand if it was on the open market. And that's important because it's happened here for existing farmers where they've gone to purchase land and they're now competing with, you know, sort of rural estate customers that are looking to buy their horse property in the Seacoast region in New Hampshire, and as a result, the prices, uh, the farmers get priced out. So <clears throat> that's sort of how we came to know about it. Um, we're looking to put it onto our property. We're working farm and will remain one, and that's how it will be sold. So it seems like an ideal situation for us. And I know that New Hampshire just completed one about a month ago. Um, so there's just it's just starting to become um, sort of a common or a more common activity in New Hampshire, and I'm hoping to bring it to the seacoast. So OPABs are a thing, a really awesome and powerful thing. And the kind of bottom line of how we can sell this story around and spread the word and get the gossip going in every direction is if your intention is to preserve land for agriculture um, and for agriculture that produces food, not hay for horses or, you know, just a vista, then protecting uh, that land under OPAV is a really positive and powerful strategy. So let's get more into the transaction. How does this happen? Uh, like, what does it take to get an OPAV? Well, so uh, let me just back up and say, so the, one of the main reasons, or what we would do with an OPAV if we had one, so when we purchased our property, we split our financing between the Farm Service Agency and Farm Credit East. And Farm Surgeons Agency has very, you know, below market uh, interest rates and are obviously overly competitive loans. But Farm Credit East is the opposite. Because they're higher-risk loans, they tend to have higher interest rates. So we would use an OPAV to pay down that higher interest loan. And the idea being we, we would pay that down that loan so much faster than the other loan that we'd be left with a low monthly payment moving forward. So we're working with, we just started this process. We're working with the Southeast Land Trust. Um, and the Russell Foundation. We did one round of applications to, for funding, and we got denied for that round. And so now we're looking to identify new opportunities and uh, pursue that from there. And I think one thing that's important is to keep these OPAVs and have them managed by land trusts versus towns. And, and I, we've had some issues with the towns trying to navigate how to manage the, the conservation easements that they already have on the property, and there's a conflict of interest there. So I think it's important to find a land trust in your area that you work with 
um, to identify funding streams and set up how these OPABs will be created because it's really important for the farmer to capture the value that they're going to put into that land over the course of however many years they're going to farm it before it's sold. And that's one of the, some of the details that we have, we need to get into when we uh, actually go to sign the line for ours. So let's talk about capturing that value because ultimately the OFAB is kind of a modification of a community land trust theory, which is that the land shouldn't have um, a speculative or a real estate value. But the, the kind of problem or the complication of that for the farmer and the farm business owner is that you're investing heavily in infrastructure, greenhouses, loading docks, barns, cooling coolers, and pad, you know, concrete pads, et cetera, and all of those that value that's the capitalization of farm business would be valuable to the next incoming farmer. So is that part of the reason to work with uh, a land trust that's really familiar with how to value and assess? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, for example, one of the land trusts, uh, one of the members of the Southeast Land Trust brought up to me, and I hadn't even considered it, you know, the soil quality in theory will be improved over time with us, you know, rotating our chickens on the property and spreading compost, et cetera. And, you know, even that should be considered um, because that's a substantial amount of my time and energy to do that. And, you know, so those subtle aspects need to be considered even when writing these OPAPs. And, yeah, I, and I, I wouldn't have gotten that type of uh, insight if I had been working, say, necessarily with a town. Um, so working with an established land trust that's done some agricultural easements would definitely be a benefit. And, of course, the land trusts are not all totally familiar yet with OPAB, and there's a certain amount of learning curve. Um, and the the kind of whole world of, of, of conservation easements is not that old yet. So on one hand, there's some people who are greenhorns to the process who are having to figure out how to navigate and provide service to farmers who are pushing the envelope in this direction and to landowners who are really committed to preserving affordable farmland for farmers for farm production on that land. Um, but over the kind of longer course of history of the conservation easement movement, it makes a lot of sense, it seems to me, to be evolving the, the way that we describe public benefit. After all this, are, you know, we're, we're, using, we're using tax dollars to pay off landowners for foregoing some of their property rights. And so it's, to, me, to my mind, it's a really positive and powerful um, observation to make that we are evolving how we construe that public benefit to include working agriculture and to value working agriculture beyond just conservation or water health or, or open land. You want to, do you have any comments on that? Sure. I mean, I, com I completely agree with you. I mean, as far as the land trust being new to this, I mean, the, the land trust, Southeast Land Trust, although they're used for working with agricultural easements, they've never done an OPAP, so we're all learning together as far as how this process goes, who are the potential funders, you know, what do they want to see, and how do we need to uh, develop this OPAP so that it works for the farmer. So, you know, that's, that's very true. As far as um, the impact it has on the community, I, you know, there's a neighbor farm near us that had to buy their farm at, um, you know, what the market would bear, and as a result, they have an ungodly amount of debt that they need to now work off for the rest of their life. So having this as a tool will definitely preserve, in my opinion, working farms in the community 
and help maintain that working landscape. And let's talk about the capitalization of your farm and your your operation, your enterprises. What um, what kinds of investments are you talking about? And then let's just play that out a little bit so that for people who are entering in, in, into similar operations that we can really, like, do a little bit of math to show what the value of that investment might yield as a potentially as a retirement fund as you sell it to another farmer. <laughs> I was just thinking today about how I did not make any more poop next year. <laughs> uh, you know, so, for example, when we bought our farm, our farm had the bare bones ingredients in the sense it had it had barns and structures that were in good shape but no electricity to them or anything. Um, so, you know, full disclosure, I think we've invested about $50,000 this year in improvements to the farm. You know, electricity to buildings, walk-in freezer, walk-in cooler, tractor, um, you know, all that sort of thing. And you know, that is a substantial portion of money to invest into a business. And I think if there's any way of establishing a value on that investment over time so that it can be considered when the property is sold in the future, I mean, I can only imagine if I had the opportunity to buy a farm that already had that type of infrastructure in place. Um, will you describe your operation? Say again? Um, will you describe the op- Sure. So we do, um, <clears throat> we raise our chickens sort of in the style that Joel Salatin pioneered. And uh, we do 600 chickens at a time. They start in stores for three weeks, then they go outside for the remainder of their life and move around in chicken tractors. And the we, you know, have grain silos that we feed out of, and we do about 10,000 chickens over the course of a year is the goal. And they rotate out every five weeks, basically. <clears throat> and then we have a garden, about two acres of vegetables, and about another acre of dried flowers or flowers that we then hang in the barn and dry. The vegetables we sell at the retail, uh, at the farmer's markets in our farm store, and the dried flowers we dry all summer and all fall, and then we bring them out in the fall, end of the fall, early winter, after the cut flower season is done um, to try to capture the flower customers when there's no more fresh flowers at the market. And uh, the mushrooms are a year-round product for us. They're very unique. No one does them at any of our summer farmer's markets. We do have some competitors at the winter markets. Um... And the same with the chicken. We produce our chicken uh, with a USDA label, and that USDA label is required at some of the regional farmers markets we attend um, by the towns. And none of the customer, uh, none of the farmers, excuse me, except for us, do that USDA label. So again, it's another unique product for us to have at the markets. So you know, our business was basically based off of identifying market opportunities during the two years that we leased farmland in the area. And then when we purchased our land, we, you know, really invested into those uh, products that seem to have more room for growth than, say, you know, trying to do beef cows, which there's some excellent beef cows uh, farms around us, and we don't need to compete with them. So what you're describing is basically a kind of a tactical analysis of the marketplace during years of startup and, and kind of sussing out the scene locally. And then yes, it was not intentional. It was, um, you know, I didn't set out with that goal. It was one of those things that naturally occurred. You know, overspending, I, when I leased the farmland, one of the agreements is that I did the farmer's markets for the farm that we were leasing from. So I got to go to the markets for two years with their product and sell their product for them. And while I was there, you know, I just naturally, passively 
and you know talked to the other farmers, discussed what they were doing and why they were doing it, looked at what the customers were buying, and then identified what holes there were there, and then that's where we decided to focus our energy. Can you do us a, a, a little interpretation? Not most people know where the coast of New Hampshire is, and um, the Piscataqua watershed region, which is super beautiful and with a lot of inland estuarine zones. Um, sure. Can you just describe the opportunities there and, and the population base and what kinds of farms are in play in your region. Sure. So the seacoast is an interesting region. It's one of the wealthiest regions in New Hampshire. It's about an hour north of Boston and an hour south of Portland, Maine. And... Um, it's got a very wealthy customer base, or <laughs> I should say community of people in, in town. So, for example, the average in Rockingham County, where the farm is, the average income is around $70,000 a year. Um, so that's substantially more than a lot of areas of New England. So we have an ideal customer base, but the other issues at the, the land values have also gone up uh, accordingly. So there are some established farms and a lot of those farms in the region don't own their land they lease land or borrow land from generous neighbors um we did not want to do that we wanted to own and so it took us about seven years to find the farm that suited our needs and our farm is located in newfield which is a small town uh just north of exeter which is a neighbor town of Portsmouth. And we chose Newfield because there's not an established farm in the town. It's got a very, you know, it's one store in the whole town. It's got a small local community feel to it. And we thought that a farm would do well in that community. And so, you know, it, it took a serious amount of work to actually identify the region in the area that was going to be suitable for what we wanted to do. So seven years is a really long farm search time. Do you, do you want to just reflect on some of your feelings um, barriers, strategies, uh, pep talk, like, uh, <laughs> as you went through that? Moments of depression. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, so I say seven years. We started looking about seven years ago. It really became forceful, active looking within the last two years. Uh, my wife and I were fortunate to both have jobs that, uh, you know, a lot of us saved us uh, some money before we started. So we did have some money to invest into the business, but not into the land. Um, we took out, you know, a mortgage for that. Finding land was incredibly difficult. We talked to the local land trusts, and we drove around for hours every week looking for land. A lot of the land was either too expensive or, you know, the home was in such rough shape that thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars were going to need to be invested into the property right away. So it took us a long time. When we finally found our property, we just got incredibly lucky. Um, well, the reason I say that is the land was in conservation, and then the outbuildings and the land were valued at higher than the house because the house is so small. So that meant no traditional bank was going to provide the funding for the property. So you either had to be a cash buyer or had to have some sort of unique financing like farm financing. So we became fortunate that it really took the property off the open market, and that was what allowed us to, you know, purchase it at an affordable value. Once again, special sauce, the special circumstances that um, are really seems like embedded in the backstory of most successful farms that I talk to. Yeah, I think it's luck and perseverance. I mean, we just we just didn't stop looking. We just kept it very active and. 
you know, as we became more serious, the nice thing was that all the footwork had already been completed. You know, we already had our approvals for everything, and that's what allowed us to uh, be able to act more quickly once we did find a farm. And then we also got lucky that the sellers wanted it to be a farm, so they were willing to be more flexible, not necessarily with their price, but with their timetable and allow us to have, you know, 90 days to secure the FSA funding because it takes a long time when you're trying to do that stuff. So taking the time, knowing the steps ahead of time, having having a pretty strong core competency of patching together these different overlapping systems of how to manage uh, these complex deals. We'll talk a little bit about how um, how you were able to access farm service and um, find support from professionals to help you with this transaction. Um, most sure. places and in the country think, are not as lucky as southern New Hampshire in terms of the expertise that lives there. Um, and I think one of the big things I'm always trying to convince funders of young farmer work is of the crucial need to support and sustain and train new farm service providers because of that super important interface role that they play. Yes, I mean, I... <clears throat> Well, I would say a couple of things. One is, you know, if someone's looking to purchase farmland, I think it was, again, it was not intentional. The best thing we did was work on farms in that community before finding land. So I would, that would be the first step, I would say, because that just opened. You're going to learn so much about what the land is like, what the com- the customers are like, what the farming community is like. And that's what opened up um my mind to pursuing funding through the Farm Service Agency. It never crossed my mind, and I was talking to another farmer who was looking to acquire additional land, and he said he was doing it through the Farm Service Agency. He provided me with the details, and then I made a phone call to our state agency, and um, I found the people to be very easy to work with. The paperwork is not. It's just arduous. It's complex. It wants details that no one carries around. Um, you know, you have to dig deep to find all the information that they want. And the other thing that's really difficult to starting when you work with an agency like the Farm Service Agency is a lot of them, even though it's for new and beginning farmers, need to see some experience. So for us, showing two years of of actually leasing farmland and owning our own business was uh, pivotal in us being able to solidify the funding we needed. So how you make that first step, I, I think, is really important. And I would recommend people, you know, lease some farmland, do some proof of concept, and then this process gets easier than if you were to come in and just say, I, I've worked on farms and now I want to own one. So all that's super valuable, but you didn't answer the question that I had, which was um, what was the role of these farm service providers? And did you feel blessed by their presence and guidance? Slash, um, would you also advocate as I do, but there be uh, a greater emphasis in preparing and supporting those people who are in the in the middle of these deals. Well, <laughs> yes, they were incredibly helpful in us purchasing our farm. We could not have done it without them. They helped us navigate the information. We actually, our um, farm service agent you know, was training a younger farm service agent at the same time. So we got to see that transfer of knowledge happening during this process. And 
they are a hardworking bunch of people, and they're working with a lot of very difficult information and timelines. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> we have to. We have to tell. We have to make sure to. Um, I don't know. Ask for what we need. And I think one of the big, big asks that I'm increasingly make of our federal government is to acknowledge the transition of this massive volume of farmland and really unprecedented transfer of ownership that's about to go on, and how transformative that will be of the political economy of agriculture in America, potentially, um, and could go in many directions. And if regional food resilience and diversified uh, ownership and small, medium, and large uh, and sustainable, um, as well as conventional, are going to have room on the landscape that we were going we're gonna to need to seriously beef up the land transition human infrastructure and human resources and human capacity to support the farmers as they do these deals. So, um, Jeremy, yeah, I, I can, but we had the unfortunate, there's a farm in the town I grew up with that just got developed. I mean, you know, it, it, the, the town tried to get involved and put the land into conservation. It just happened so quickly and now it's gone. It's happening fast. It's happening really fast. I'm just out in Colorado giving a talk yesterday and, you know, they managed to save a piece of land that was part of a school district that was 38 acres next to a school that the school was going to sell. The community all got together. There was an underbid, an old boy undercut them, and they had to raise a bunch more money and lawyer fees. And, you know, and then as soon as they got that deal closed, another farm that had some treasure in the area um, needed to find a new owner. And, and they just, you know, lacked the capacity to take on another project. It's, um, you know, it's, Brave Same. and long. It's it's no. It's not work for the for the tender-hearted. This land conservation stuff. Um, I want to give you a, a chance to mention anything that is coming up in your region or on your farm, or that occurs to you as important to say. And then I have a couple of little announcements as well. Sure. Um, so for us, the you know, unfortunately or fortunately, the summer is coming to a close, and it's the transition to the winter markets. And there, we have some very robust winter markets around here, and it's just exciting to think about. You know, we our dried flowers, uh, it's our new product for us this year, and so we're excited to introduce that to the markets. We're going to be doing everything from, you know, bouquets to wreaths um, to table arrangements for the holidays, and it's going to be, uh, well, it's going to be a learning experience. So we're excited about that. So we can find you at the markets in the Portsmouth region. You can also yep. find. You can also find greenhorns at the market. Um, we've been selling all the products delivered by sailboat down at the Boston Public Market, and hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be back there to sell into the holiday market. Um, everything from maple syrup to pickled beans to seaweed to dry beans, um, all those beautiful goods that we brought down, uh, down, down into the ground. Please, um, everyone, get your thoughts together if you're interested to submit an essay for the next New Farmers Almanac, which whose deadline is February 2016. That's the deadline for essays for the New Farmers Almanac. Me and Charlie are getting our butts in gear for the production schedule, and it comes out uh, hopefully this time in time for Thanksgiving of 2016, the 2017 New Farmers Almanac.
So anyway, thanks all for listening. Thanks, Jeremiah, for doing such a great job. And congratulations well, on your you. success. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 